It was just a few days until Christmas and Tom had looked long and hard to find a gift for his wife, Sarah. Finally, he thought he'd found it. And of all places, in the attic. He didn't quite know what it was, but he thought it looked pretty. And he thought it would look nice on the mantel above the fireplace. It looked as if it were made of brass. It was only a few inches high. And so he took it and put it in his pocket and carried it downstairs, where he polished it secretly in the kitchen, tied it up nice with a bow, and put a little tag with Sarah's name on it, and then slyly slid it beneath the tree for Christmas morning. Christmas morning came. Sarah and Tom exchanged their gifts, and she was happy, as always, to receive presents at Christmas. This one, she particularly liked. Words like beautiful and just the thing were some of the adjectives she used to describe this object she had received. Until finally she asked Tom, What is it? Tom paused. It's a a thingamabob. She said it on her lips silently to herself. And she said, okay, it's a thingamabob. We'll put it right over here. Sliding her hand along the mantel, she knocked off Christmas cards that they had received and made some space for the thingamabob. And a Christmas tradition was born. Each Christmas, every year, they would take the thingamabob out of the box and put it right there on the mantel. And whenever someone would ask, what is that? And I'll say, it's the thingamabob, of course. What Sarah had really wanted for Christmas that year was several hundred dollars more than the thingamabob had cost and several hundred pounds beyond what Tom's slender salary would allow. You see, a number of years ago, Sarah's parents had given her a beautiful grandfather clock that was actually built by her grandfather. It was tall, a bit rustic, but beautifully carved and polished. Sarah always remembered it. It had been her grandfather's house at the top of the stairs, like it was guarding them, regularly ticking and talking the time away, chiming every hour. She would listen to it and stare at it watched her grandfather play with it. And with, with it on in one time, much to her grandmother's, grandfather's alarm, she made it into a dollhouse. In short, she loved the clock. And what she had really wanted for Christmas that year was for the clock to work. It hadn't worked since they moved it from her grandfather's house several years earlier. And a number of members of their family had done all they could to try to get it to work. Neighbors had poked at it, but no one had successfully figured out how to fix the problem. Tom, of course, had made a few phone calls around town to clockmakers, seeing if they could address his needs, but each time he discovered that the cost was more than he could afford. And so for another year, Sarah's clock stood silently. It was a few years later that the most amazing thing happened with Sarah's clock. A friend of Tom's from work had come over to help them with some of the festivities as they were decorating their home. And he was tinkering with the clock as he always did, poking with this, pressing on that. And he said to Tom, you know, I'm sure we could get this thing to work. And Tom concurred. I think so. 
I just don't have the money. Right after he said that, Tom bent down to pull out from its box the thingamabob. Andy stared at it and asked him, what is that? And Tom said, it's just a thingamabob. Where did you get it? Tom then recounted for him the story of finding the object in the attic, polishing it up, and then gifting it to his wife, who then enjoyed what had become a wonderful ornament that came out every December. Do you mind if I try something with it? Andy asked. No, Tom said. Help me lay the clock on its side first, said Andy. And about an hour later, there was no more thingamabob on the mantle. The thingamabob was back where it belonged. And Sarah's grandfather clock was finally working again. Thanks to the thingamabob. For many people, the celebration of Christmas that we have in our culture is a bit like that thingamabob. We don't know quite what to do with it. It comes from the attic of family tradition, having some beauty about it. Over the years, it acquires a certain amount of sentimental attachment, but it's not so useful, even though it's, it's appreciated. I think this is probably because Jesus is like that for many people in our culture. Somewhere along the line, us and the church included, began celebrating Christmas culturally rather than scripturally. And somewhere along the line, we lost our focus on Christ and the reason for the celebration in the first place. We seem to delight in exchanging gifts and the joy in singing to the mythological Santa Claus coming to town, more so than we enjoy delighting in the incarnation of the Son of God. Consequently, many of us have placed Jesus on the periphery, not only of the holiday, but of our lives. We treat him as if he were a thingamabob, to be pulled out once a year, admired, and then tucked away back in the attic to be forgotten. My goal this morning, in our time together, this morning, this evening, in our time together, is to exhort you to celebrate the King of Christmas to celebrate Jesus. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And the main idea of this section, what Matthew wants us to know, is that Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. And it's Jesus who is the only one who can save us from our sins. Outline is fairly simple. You have it there on your insert. We're going to look at the situation, the incarnation, and then the response. Situation, incarnation, response. Look with me at verse 18 of chapter 1. Let's pray first. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together in order to celebrate the incarnation and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is an extraordinary miracle. We ask that you would help us to not slumber through this season, but to wake up to its magnificence, to be thrilled at what is perhaps the greatest miracle that has ever been performed in the history of humanity. That the second person 
of the Trinity took on flesh and entered into the human story so that he might save sinful men from the wrath they deserve. God, this is incredible. We ask that you would help us to see it this evening. Open up our ears that we might hear your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at me at verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ, remember we talked about this on Sunday, Christ is not a last name. There wasn't Jesus Christ and Mary Christ and Joseph Christ and James Christ and all the Christ family with their little Christ mailbox and the welcome to the Christ home mat. It's not a last name, it's a title, much like the President of the United States, when he becomes President, gets the title President and then is evermore known as the President. President Trump, President Obama, President Clinton, President Abraham Lincoln, you get the idea. Christ is a title. And so Matthew has said from the get-go in verse 1 of chapter 1 that this Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of David. He's the rightful king, the king of Israel. He is the son of Abraham. He's the one through whom all the blessings of God are going to reach the nations. And Matthew tells us in that genealogy, he is the king, he's the king, he's the king. The whole thing is oriented around showing us, the reader, especially the early Jewish readers, that this Jesus is the king who is promised. He is the one who is going to be the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, mighty God, everlasting father. He is the one whose kingdom will know no boundaries. He is the one this people under oppression and gloom have been waiting on. He is the light of the world. This is the birth of Jesus Christ, the king you've been waiting for. And it came about in this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. And so here's the situation. You have Mary and Joseph who are engaged to one another. They are betrothed. We'll talk about that in a minute in an ancient society. But, but they are to be wed together. And therefore, and this is pretty simple math at that time, they are both virgins. They have not slept together. They, they have had no kind of sexual intercourse. And then we read, it is discovered that Mary has become pregnant from the Holy Spirit of God. Now, imagine with me, if you can, being in Joseph's position here, right? Things are going well. You're engaged. You know, you've found the love of your life, that person that makes your heart just go pitter-patter. Twitter-pated, you're just infatuated, singing to yourself that song, you know, go into the chapel and we're gonna get married. You're excited! And then you see Mary one day, you go to drop by her place to say hello. And she says, we need to talk. And you're like, whatever it is, you and me, baby, we can get through it. And then she, she lays it on you. I have been completely faithful to you. I have. I, I love you. But you see, the, the thing is, I am pregnant with the Son of God. 
what? Maybe you might laugh at her. And then eventually, you recognize that she's being serious. It must have been shocking. I mean, that's one way I imagine it went down. Perhaps she just started showing, and they went, you know what, something's, she was, I thought she was putting on weight at first, but now we're discovering that she's pregnant, right? So he discovers that she's pregnant. And because he's a nice guy, he decides that he's going to divorce her secretly. Now, you're going, if they're engaged or betrothed, why does he need to divorce her, right? Well, you have to understand that betrothal in the first century worked, is not a one-to-one to our engagement, right? The agreement was much more serious, and it typically people were getting married in their teenage years. Uh, and so ancient Palestine, you might con- compare to um, contemporary Kentucky, right? People are getting married when they're teenagers, right? Well, y'all caught up there. So. They're getting married when they're teenagers typically. And so your parents would arrange for this marriage. Then the husband's family would pay the bride price to the bride's family. And then they would make a legal, do- legal document at this point. So you would be legally bound to one another during this betrothal period. And you continue to live separately. So the girl would continue to live with her parents. He'd continue to live at his place or prepare wherever they were going to live together. And then after six months uh, to a year, there would be this big bridal procession from the bride's house to where she was going to live. They'd have a big party. And then that evening, they would consummate the marriage if she had remained pure. And so they're in this weird, they're bound to one another legally and she has been discovered to be with child. And Joseph's like, I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. You're pregnant, and it's not by, my, not by me. And so we need to get a divorce. I'm a nice guy. I love you, so I'm not going to do it publicly, which for him to not do it publicly at the city gate with the elders risked him like not getting the bride price back. But he's, he's considering Mary's interests. He's going to do it quietly. And it's just not all roses for Joseph. Mary would have been considered not only a a fornicator, but an adulterer. Joseph is not buying her story. And I don't think many of us would have either. This is a unique event in history. It is without precedent. So we can imagine Joseph after he's made this decision to divorce Mary quietly, kind of laying on his bed at night with a heavy heart, tossing and turning, unable to sleep. And then eventually his heavy eyelids close and sleep takes him. And while he's sleeping, he has a dream. Look with me at verse 20. But after he had considered these things, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, The virgin will conceive. She will become pregnant and give birth to a son. They will name him Emmanuel, 
which is translated, God is with us. So there's Joseph asleep, and he gets an angelic birth announcement. You guys have seen these things, right? I think it's more of a contemporary thing. You send people birth announcements now. And I guess they're for people that you're not really that close to, but you were friends at one point in your life. And so you're like, hey, guess what? I had a kid. Isn't that awesome? And and they come in the mail. And what he has is an angelic one. Usually birth announcements come after the baby is here. This one comes before the baby arrives. The angel says to Joseph, look, Mary is going to have a baby. And what seems just impossible to you is actually true. What is within her is from God. It is God himself is in her womb. So you know, you know the prophecy from Isaiah, unto us a child is born. You know the, the prophecy that a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they'll name him Emmanuel? Well, that's what is in your future wife. There's no need to divorce her. And you, in fact, you're going to marry her and you're going to give him the name Jesus, which Old Testament comes from Joshua, Yeshua, Yahweh, saves is what it means. Jesus, his name means Yahweh, God, saves. He's going to be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Before we get to that part, though, we need to think about what exactly is happening here, what we're being told. We're being told that the second person of the Trinity is taking on a second nature, a human one. That he is becoming what he was not while never ceasing to be what he was. That God is becoming a man. That's what we mean by the word incarnation, right? Uh, You're not thinking incarnation like the flower, right? Think um, like chili con carnes, right? In flesh. This This is God becoming a man. It is incredible. The unmade becoming made, the infinite, becoming finite. The God who created and sustains everything humbles himself so that he swims in amniotic fluid for nine months, is born as a baby, needs to have his diapers changed, and a nurse at his mother's breast. He he grows up knowing what it's like to have parents and to have siblings I love that scene in Matthew 12 where his brother and his mother come and they're like trying to get in the house. Anyhow, that's a different story. I'm going to go down a rabbit hole. He knows what it's like to have brothers. He knows what it's like to have a family meal. He knows what it is to get hungry and to get sick. He is our high priest. He's able to sympathize with what it is to be human because he is human. He became one of us so that he might save us from our sins. I mean, have you ever thought about this? I mean, it would be tantamount to you or I becoming a worm, except for just the gap would be way bigger. This is what God has done in the incarnation. We're told about this throughout the New Testament. John 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, the Word is a reference to Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in him and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And yet the darkness did not 
overcome it. And you go down through John's prologue and you get to verse 14. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We observed His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God the Son moves His address into the womb of a virgin girl. Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him, And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn. This is a statement of priority, not of origin. God the Son has existed eternally. He is the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. The visible and the invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And by him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. So that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God became a man. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. God became a man, fully God, fully man. That's that's what's happening in the person of Jesus. We have to ask ourselves a question. Why? Why did God become a man? And the answer there is in verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. God had to become a human being so that he might save human beings from their sins. You understand that? So sometimes we get, let me back up here. We are all sinners. And sometimes we throw around the word sin and we think of, well, it's like a mistake or an error. Right? It comes from that old English archery term, which means to, to miss the mark. So if there was a bullseye in the, the back of the church there down the alley, I could shoot an arrow. And if I missed it, uh, Mike might hold up a sign that says sin just means to miss. But, but, a, but a much better definition of sin in the Bible is not that you just made a mistake or that you missed the mark. It would be as if you were standing there next to God at the arrow range. Is that what that's called? I don't know. You're shooting stuff and he, he's talking to you and you pull a dagger from your side, and you plunge it into his heart. That's what sin is. Sin is a rebellion against God. It's the de-godding of God. It's, it's, it's when we say, God, I know that's what you say, 
but I'm going to live life my way. I am going to follow my heart and be true to myself instead of listening to your voice because I am smarter than you. And that's what sin is. And God, being infinitely wonderful and infinitely just and an infinitely righteous king, determines that he will end evil and that he will put down rebellions, that he will end those who are treasonous. It gets us back to our question, why has he become a man? To save us from our sins. You see, God has resolved to end evil and to end sin. And the cross and the birth of Christ is about how he ends evil and ends sin without ending us. Because you and I are evil. We are sinners. Christmas is not this sentimental thing that that says, everybody just cheer up and and be nice to each other, and and we are the world, and we can build a better place. Just be nice to each other. It's going to be great. It's not what Christmas says. Christmas says, you are so wicked, you cannot fathom it. You are so separated from God that you could be described as dead. Christmas is the only way for sinful men to be made right with God is for the Son of God to become a man and live a perfect life of obedience and earn the blessing of God and to die a substitutionary death in the place of sinful human beings, taking the curse that they deserve. That's the message of Christmas that we could not save ourselves and that God had to come to accomplish our salvation. The image here, the the way that the the Greek grammar works, actually sets up sins as an adversary, as if they were attacking us, which is is kind of a neat image. So if you think of like David and Goliath, Christ is the one who's going to save us from our sins, from our great enemy, our great foe. It's incredible. We owe a sin debt to God that we could never pay. An infinite offense. And what Christ accomplishes on the cross is a great exchange. It's as if we, if you want to think of it in financial terms, it's as if we are in the red and we can't even see the black, how far in the red we are. And what Jesus does, he's he's so far in the black, we can't see. He's just got it all. On the cross, what he does is he, he takes what he has, the blessing of God, And he gives it to those who have faith. And he takes that red, that sin from them, upon himself. God upholds his mercy, or upholds his justice, while expressing his mercy to sinful humanity. Jesus saves us from our sins by his grace. Christianity is not good advice. It's not like all those other world religions where uh, God is here and just you do X, Y, and Z, perform these actions and you'll be good with God. You can get there. We'll all meet at the top. No, no, no. Christianity says God has come down the mountain to save us himself. It's not good advice. It's good news. It's an announcement about what God has done. And what Christianity says is give up on your own damnable good works. Give up on trying to fix yourself. You can't make yourself right with God. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Christianity says, come to the king. 
and submit yourself to him. Lay down your weapons of rebellion. Say, God, I am done doing things my way. You're my king. You're my Lord. You're my savior. This is what Christmas is about. Jesus Christ saving us from our sins. In 1961, the Russians put the first cosmonaut into outer space. And upon his return, the Russian premier said famously, there is no God. We went to space. We didn't find God there. This prompted C.S. Lewis to respond with an article, which is quite brilliant. He said, if God exists and he wanted to relate to us, he wouldn't relate to us in the same way that a man on the first floor of a building relates to a man on the second floor of a building. We shouldn't expect to find God by simply going higher into the air and into the atmosphere and eventually even into outer space. He said, no, no, no. God is much more likely to relate to us the way Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. Hamlet can only know about Shakespeare in the play if Shakespeare reveals information about himself within the play. And you see, in Christianity, what God has done is he hasn't just revealed information about himself in our history. He's written himself in, like Dorothy Sayers used to. He's written himself in to this story as one of the characters. In fact, as the hero who saves us from our sins, slays the dragon, and brings us all safely home. This is what the incarnation is about. Christmas is about the cross. Jesus is born in Bethlehem and laid in a manger so that one day he can hang on a cross outside of Jerusalem. The incarnation is about God becoming killable in a sense so that he might ransom us. That demands quite the response. Look how Joseph responds to this announcement that Jesus is the king who is to come. Verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. And so Joseph at great social cost to himself, does not divorce Mary. In fact, he abstains from engaging in sexual intercourse with her until after the birth of Christ. It's not always easy to believe God and to follow Jesus. In fact, Jesus tells us that if we want to follow him as Lord, if we want to enjoy his salvation, all it takes is simple belief in him but it's belief that is evidenced through the fruit of faith. It says, the one who wants to follow after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is what Joseph was doing. He said, I'm going to believe God and obey him at great expense to myself because I believe God is worth it. I believe his word is true. And the question for us here is how will we respond to Christmas? How will we respond to Jesus? Will we deny ourselves, 
take up our cross and follow Him? Or will we deny Him and remain under His wrath? He is a just God after all. Now Christian, I encourage you this Christmas to respond to the call of the gospel, to the good news of the gospel. To believe. Christian, I encourage you to not celebrate this holiday culturally. And yes, it's fun to do, to do Santa and then the tree. I got three trees in my house somehow. Like, it's fun, do it. But don't lose sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't just dwell on Jesus Christ once a year or twice a year, Christmas and Easter. No, no, no. He is Lord every day. Not just on these two days. Don't set him to the edge of your life like a thingamabob that sits in the attic gathering dust and needs polish and we take it out and admire it every once in a while. Oh, no, no, no. Come to him as Lord, as the source of life, as the God who has created you and me and came to save us from our sins. Worship him as king. Let's pray. Father, your goodness dazzles and awakens. Your presence is as a storm and a whisper. You are indeed magnificent beyond our imagination. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you that instead of ending us as you rightfully could have, instead of sentencing us to an eternity under your wrath, you have offered to us the gift of salvation so that anyone who repents of their sin and puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can be saved from the wages of sin, from your wrath, and instead enjoy your blessing. We thank you that because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, because he lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and rose from the dead on the third day, has ascended to his throne, and will one day return to make all things new, that we won't be part of that which falls under his anger, but instead can look forward to that day with hope, recognizing he has made all things well. Everything sad and true. Lord, this story is the greatest story that there ever was of how you saved your people from their sins. We give you praise and honor and glory this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.